And let's begin reading with verse 10. It says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest in a book, uh, and write, what thou seest, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet likened to fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And in his right and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun that shineth in his strength. Um, let us skip down to verse 20. And the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Um, we didn't really get to explain all of the, the chart yesterday. But one of the things, uh, uh, differences that I did with my chart, you see across here a, a band and you've got Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I believe that these seven churches were actually seven literal churches that John wrote to. They existed at that time. They had the issues that he addressed. But there is something in the, the number seven that's a number of completeness. And one of the things I believe that we find in these letters, issues addressed, that churches of the Lord Jesus Christ in every generation, in every age, have had to deal with these issues. And so there's instruction there. They're typical in that sense, that these churches uh, represent typical uh, churches and typical issues that the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ will have to deal with. But I also think there was a third application, and they are prophetic. Just as in the book of Daniel, God through Daniel foretold the future of Israel through a number of visions, and there was the different beasts and all that represented different kingdoms that would arise down through time and God dealing with Israel. I believe... He has given to His churches a similar uh, forecast, if you will, telling the history of what we will experience and what we can expect till He comes back. He didn't leave us in the dark. And so I've used these churches as a means of breaking down and teaching the church history. And so uh, this morning... And, and the, this top part of the chart, this is the history of the church as the world understands it. This is the history of the church as preserved and presented by the Catholic Church that the world has accepted as the representative of Christianity during these ages. And so we'll discuss that as we go through and how that uh, arose. The red dots represent true New Testament churches. Do you see there's some gray and kind of purplish looking dots? These are the churches that began to develop irregularities, that began to depart from the faith, and eventually became the Roman Catholic Church. Whereas the bottom part of this chart, we see a, and that's the reason there's kind of a straight line coming down like this, that there was the succession of true New Testament churches. 
and their history through this that parallels this up here. But there is a succession throughout the ages as Jesus promised. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. That's what this represents here. It's not represented up here. But you see some red dots up here. And that's because even in the Catholic history, the history of the world looks back and they recognize, well, here was this little group over here in this country, around this town. And they held to some uh, doctrines and practices like the Baptists. And so they crop up from time to time in this history up here. But that's because there was... And they see them as isolated from one another. There's not a connection. But we understand that there is a connection. There is a succession. And that's what this bottom line represents. So, as we go through this, and as we kind of gave the introduction yesterday, and we see that over many generations, the spread of the gospel, as Jesus uh, told the disciples there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You'll be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And we see the beginnings of that recorded in the New Testament, and especially from the church in Antioch, uh, which came out of Jerusalem, and then especially from Antioch, uh, the mission work by, carried out by the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, and later Paul and Silas, and the churches that they established in Asia, what is now Turkey, these seven churches are in what is the western part of modern-day Turkey. And then over into Macedonia, uh, which is northern Greece and southern Greece. Church at Corinth was in the southern part of Greece. And eventually to Rome. And from there, you know, and, and they wasn't all going that way. There was other churches uh, established as well. But we see the establishment of many churches throughout the Roman Empire and beyond its borders, as the churches follow the pattern of evangelism and church planning given to them by Christ and His apostles, which we discussed and talked about the perpetuity and succession. Now we also see corruptions. We're warned of in the Scriptures that there, and this is the mystery of iniquity at work. And Jesus and the apostles warned us that there would be wolves in sheep's clothing. That there would be, uh, Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians, the uh, 11th chapter, I believe it is, uh, ministers of Satan presenting themselves as ministers of righteousness. Now think about this for a minute, because sometimes from our modern life experiences and uh, perspective, the, where we grew up in this world down here. That when we're talking about back here, as this one Methodist historian is quoted as saying, I think it was Ridpat, he said, now I shouldn't readily admit that there was Baptist churches as far back as the first century. But all churches in the first century were Baptist churches. So, when we're talking, and this is what you need to grasp, when we talk about ministers of Satan posing as ministers of righteousness, he's not talking about Catholic priests. He's not talking about Methodists or Pentecostals or, or something else. He's talking about Baptist preachers in Baptist churches. As that's where it started, because there wasn't anything else back then. That's all there was. And so, these wolves in sheep's clothing, and they're here today in Baptist churches. These ministers of Satan posing as ministers of righteousness, they're here today in Baptist churches. We need to, and that's why understanding this history is so important, or it's going to repeat itself. You see. And so, as we look at this, and... This, the ancient period from the uh, first century, from Christ to the end of the apostolic age. John the Apostle lived to about the year 99. 
So the apostle, this first hundred years, this first century, is populated by the apostles. And this is, we see these things going. Now, in the letter to the church at Ephesus, let me get right into this. Because I believe this represents this apostolic period here, Ephesus. He says, Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they're apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hath labored and has not fainted. Well, that sounds pretty good. And we're talking about under the, during the lifetime of the apostles, these churches were being planted, and they were growing up, and they were struggling. There was the persecution of the Jews. At first, the Roman Empire didn't pay a whole lot of attention to them. This was a Jewish issue. This was a squabble within the Jewish faith. But as they began to spread, and there was more and more Gentile churches throughout the Roman Empire, they began to realize, no, this is something bigger. And they began to deal with it. So you, you're dealing with these various persecutions from without, and at the same time dealing with these corruptions from within. And these churches were very, they, they were planted by the Lord. They were planted by the, the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ and these other laborers that labored with the apostles. And so there was a lot that was doing good. He said, nevertheless, <laughs> one of my wife's favorite words, you know, kids can be coming up with the different things and all, and she'll say, but nevertheless, that, that kind of puts a halt to everything. Um, there's two issues mentioned here. He said, first of all, you've left your first love. And the second issue hadn't become a big problem. said, you, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so we want to look at these two issues that began to crop up within the time, lifetime of the apostles and the effects that it has. And so, as we do that, and we think about it, the first one, we said, Thou hast left thy first love. Now that gets thrown around a lot, used a lot, but what exactly does that mean? What is the first love? He's speaking to a church. Um, and I think there's a good answer to that found in Scripture. You have a question, look at the Scriptures. The Scripture will answer it. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, he says, Paul writing to the church at Corinth says, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So the church's relationship as a church, now this is different from the relationship of each individual believer to Christ as their Savior. We talked about this the other day, uh, the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament. And Boaz is a great example of that we have of this actually being exercised. Because families could fall into poverty. They had the land, the land was given to them, uh, and this was their heritage, this was their possession. But sometimes they got into a tight spot financially, and they may have to sell off some of that land. But it had to stay within the family. It had to stay within the tribe. And every 50 years, all those would revert back to the original owners. So that kept that heritage in place. And so the family member that would redeem it, he was the kinsman redeemer. Now there were three things that a kinsman redeemer could redeem. He could redeem land... 
He could redeem people because sometimes people sold themselves into slavery because they had no way to pay their debts. He could redeem a people. He could redeem a bride. As Boaz did with Ruth. Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. He holds the title deed to the earth. I believe that's that scroll with the seven seals in the book of Revelation. He's going to redeem the earth. He's redeemed a people, the family of God. And, but he's also in redeeming the family of God, and out of that family he has redeemed a bride. And that's his church. And that is a distinct relationship to the Lord that is different from the relationship as an individual believer. Now the church is made up of individual believers. But as we are fitly framed together as a holy temple and a habitation of God through the Spirit, His church has that relationship as Paul describes here as a bride who has been a spouse to one husband. Now Paul over in Ephesians, you know how he talks about wives? Submit yourselves to your husbands. And he goes through this list, and, and husbands love your wives. But what is the, he does a comparison that the wife is in relationship to her husband. It's the same relationship that the church holds to Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church, not as so much as a governmental official head, but as a husband is the head of the wife. And the wife owes her love, her affection, and her obedience and submission to him alone. She doesn't owe, as, as a, a, a woman, you do not owe submission to just any man. Some men have gotten that impression. And they think they can boss any woman around because they're a man and she's a woman. That is unbiblical. That is unscriptural. The woman is subject to her father until the father gives her hand to a man to wed and then she becomes subject to her husband. And that's the only man she is subject to. And the church is only subject to the leadership of Jesus Christ, which He carries out through the, His Spirit that dwells in the church and through the Scripture. He exercises that headship, and we're under that same marital obligation to be faithful to Him. He is our only head. He is the only one we're to follow, that we're to obey. Now, when you have a diatrophies who likes to have the preeminence, he is replacing Jesus Christ as the head of that church. You've left your first love. When you have a hierarchy, a group of preachers, now some, there, there are some preachers that abuse pastoral authority. The office of the pastor is a gift to the church to be a servant, to be a blessing. Not to rule over it. Not to lord over God's heritage. There are some places I might get in trouble for saying that. But that's a diatrophies. And Jesus said, I hate that. And it's a good thing you hate it too. The deeds of the Nicolaitans. The word in the Greek means the overcomer of the people. Laity is the people. Laodicea, we, we see that. That's where the people rule. But the Nicolaitans, that was, I believe, a reference to the development of a hierarchy where a bunch of preachers get together. And we see this develop. You'd have a big city. And there'd be some smaller churches around it with well, the bishop or pastor. And in the beginning, the bishop was basically, that meant the preacher, the pastor of the church. 
he'd be the pastor of this large metropolitan uh, church. I guess Jerusalem could have fit that description. But they held sway over smaller churches, and smaller pastors looked to that pastor for guidance. And there's nothing wrong with looking to others for help, for guidance, for understanding. But they have no authority to tell you what you need to preach or practice in your church. That's a hierarchy. That's the doctrine or the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Later it becomes a doctrine. So these two things. And so what was it in the context where Paul talks there to the church at Corinth? I've espoused you as a chaste virgin to one husband, to Jesus Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as, as Satan uh, deceived Eve there in the garden, that he might deceive you. And he lists three things. If any come to you and they preach another Jesus. You know, this idea that Jesus was not divine. And, and first, I believe... If you deny the impeccability of Christ, you're denying the deity of Christ. That's another Jesus. If you preach a Jesus that is not able to save, but he needs you to help him to save you, that's another Jesus. And when you replace him as the head of the church, that's another Jesus or another head. That's not the Jesus you was espoused to. And he said, there's some of you that have left that. And that's bad. So you need to repent. Or I'm going to come to you quickly. <laughs> that's serious. Because the whole purpose of the church. He said, my church, I'm going to build my church. It's my bride. It's my beloved. Doesn't belong to anybody else. And I'm jealous. Paul said, I have a godly jealousy. Why? Because God, I believe Jesus is jealous over his churches. He loved it, gave himself for it. He redeemed it as his bride. He said, another spirit. So there in John, 1 John 4, said, Try the spirits. See whether they're of God or not. There's a lot of spirits out in this world. And you can, you know, you have services. Boy, the spirit was there, you know, and all this. Try the spirits. Not every spirit out there is the spirit of God. Remember, the church was established and built and fitly framed together to become a holy temple, a habitation of God through the Spirit. The Spirit took up His position in the church on the day of Pentecost. That's where for ten days between the time that Jesus ascended back up until the Holy Spirit came, the church was kind of on its own here. Now, the Lord is with them, but not in that sense that the paraclete, the, the, the comforter, was to be with them. And he came on the day of Pentecost and empowered the churches. And to me, that's where a church has, gets its authority. It's not just from the Scripture, but the spirit, in spirit and in truth. Not just the Scripture, but the presence of the Holy Spirit empowering a church makes it truly functional and a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he threatened them. He said, if you don't, I'm going to come and I'm going to remove your candlestick. And what I say, what are the candlesticks? The candlestick is the church. It is the lampstand. It's the oil lamp. And the oil is the Holy Spirit that gives you light. And understanding. He said, I'll, I'll take it away. Now, this is to the very first church. But like I said, this is typical 
Churches in every age have had to deal with this. But we see this happening during the very first century. And we'll see it follow through then in the next uh, letter to the next church. But, and, and the, so I believe that's what he meant when he said, I'll t- remove your candlestick. Now, here's the thing, too, to understand. Even if he removes the candlestick from a church, individual members of the church that are saved, they're still saved. They, they're still sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's a, two different ministries and works of the Holy Spirit. So you can have a, a so-called church that's not a true New Testament church and have saved people in it. Have been down all through the ages. But that doesn't make it a church. The candlestick. Anyway, so we see these things in, represented there, and he commanded them to repent. And as we said, these things kind of manifest the presence, uh, the working of the mystery of iniquity. And, and that's why I have one of those little things right there on the chart. Now we come to the church at Smyrna. I want to understand the name Smyrna means crushed. It's the idea that this was a period of persecution that the churches underwent. And, and most of the time, especially in the, the history up here, this time of persecution, true churches, false churches, her- heretical churches, they were all persecuted alike by the Roman authorities. Now, as we see... Uh, and kind of summing up the church at Ephesus, I believe there were some churches that had never left their first love. Some, uh, those that had left their first love, there were some that heard what God was saying to them and repented. But some did not. And those that did not, that's where these, see these is kind of partly red and partly gray, they became fully gray. The Lord removed the candlestick. Now they're still a ch- they they still function as a church. I mean, um, in Paul's letter to Timothy, he's talking about in the last days. But having a form of godliness, an outward form, but denying the power thereof, as God's people, those who profess to be saved. They go through the outward motions. They attend church. They may tithe. They may sing in the choir. They may do these things. But they're lost. And you read that list of behaviors that is present. Even though they go to church. Even though they sing in the choir. Even though they tithe. Even though they do all these things. They have a form of godliness, but they're denying the power. The Holy Spirit is not being manifested as present in their lives. And that's these churches. They carry on. They still claim to be churches. And they are persecuted alike. They're all lumped together. and They're Christian churches as far as the Roman authorities are concerned. Um, and so he says to the church there in Smyrna, said, I know thy works, um, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. I think that's interesting contrast, the church at Smyrna. said, I know you're poverty, but you're rich. And you go to the church at Laodicea, you think you're rich, but actually you're poor. But... Um, He said, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. The word synagogue simply means a congregation. So they were a congregation, but they were not an ecclesia. And I believe these are the churches. And, And remember too, John, God's giving this revelation to John at a period of time 
by 99 AD, I'm not sure exactly when the book of Revelation was written, but by 99 AD, Jerusalem had been destroyed. Matter of fact, by 70 AD, I think, is when Jerusalem was uh, destroyed. 70 and 100 AD, uh, there was twice two waves in which they were uh, destroyed. And so the Roman authorities don't have a lot of toleration for the Jews at this point. And in prophetic writings, a lot of symbolism is used to represent things. You know, over in the Old Testament, there's beasts that represented kingdoms and, and, and different things like that. And we understand that. And I, I think this is kind of code for these false churches. They say they are Jews. Well, you go, we're the seed of Abraham by promise. He's not a Jew that is circumcised in the flesh, but that is the circumcision of the heart, the new birth. And so they claim that they're Christians. They claim they're believers. They claim they're the children of God, but they're not. They're the synagogue of Satan. And so we see the beginnings here of the infiltration and corruption of true New Testament churches that turned them into the this false church, that is the purpose of the mystery of iniquity. That's Satan at work, working toward his ultimate goal, as we said before. And you need to understand that, that he has a plan. He, neither God nor Satan is doing anything by chance or off the cuff. They've got a plan that they are working out. And we see this playing out in history. And so we see these corrupt churches then, and they're all persecuted alike. And this plays a big role in what comes next. And so he tells them, fear none of these things. You know, you be faithful. And it is these disciples set an example of martyrdom. They embraced it. It was the high badge. It was the highest honor. And Paul kind of exemplified this himself and set the tone. That Jesus Christ suffered and died for me. What an honor. What a blessing. That I'm counted worthy to offer up my life and die for Him. And that was kind of the attitude they embraced. And there were ten, he said, ten days here, but there, you, history records there was ten general persecutions against the Christian churches by the Roman authorities over this period of time. And there was times of peace in between. And what would happen when the, the, the Christians were being persecuted? Some would renounce the faith. They would revert back to their paganism to escape martyrdom, to escape death. But then when it was peaceful, and things were quiet for a while, they'd want to come back and rejoin the church. Oh, we didn't really mean that. We're, we're still believers. And so they were called lapsi. The lapsi. They had lapsed under persecution. And there was a controversy over whether or not they should be received back. Some was all for receiving them. Some said, no, I don't think we ought to. And here's some scripture. And I want to give scriptures for these different practices why they did this. Now, this isn't a matter of someone getting drunk in public and being excluded and repenting and straightening up and coming back and asking to be reinstated. They renounced Christ. They renounced the faith. And many times they turned over other believers to the authorities to save their own lives. This is what Paul is referring to in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25. We're familiar with this verse and we use it to say, People, you need to be in church every service. 
But Paul was dealing with a different issue. These were Jewish believers who were coming under heavy persecution and family pressure, peer pressure, to revert back to Judaism, to renounce Christianity, which they saw as a a turning away from the, the faith that God had given to the fathers. Rather than a fulfilling and a carrying on of that faith, they saw it as a deviation from the faith, and there was much pressure being put upon them to renounce their Christianity and revert back to Judaism. And so when you read this, let's pick up with verse 23. This kind of sets, it goes back further, but let us hold fast the profession of our faith. You get that? Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. That's the whole purpose of this letter was to encourage the Jewish believers to keep on following Christ. For He is faithful that promise. And let us consider one another to provoke and to love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And this is one of those word studies I did. And basically it's saying quit renouncing Christianity. Quit turning away from Christian faith and going back to your Judaism. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves, as the manner some is. Some had done this. But exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Because here's the thing. I always found it difficult to reconcile the idea that this was just talking about missing a service once in a while with the judgment that is pronounced that follows this. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. And that was the foundation of the reasons the strict churches would not receive the lapsy. You can't be saved a second time. Paul stated that earlier in the book of Hebrews, he made that point. In chapter 6. So you can't go back and be saved a second time. That would mean Jesus Christ would have to come back and go through all that all over again. If the first time didn't save you, if that wasn't sufficient to save you, there's no going back and doing it again. So... He said, if we sin willfully, there's no more but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. One of the preachers of that day said, I don't know whether you're saved or not. That's between you and God. But between you and the church, you renounce the faith and we're not taking you back. That was kind of the strict. So those was the, the, uh, one of the issues that, and we're not talking about just over a week or a month. We're talking over a period of years and years that this was going on. There was another issue uh, that was also agitating at this time. Is the baptism of heretics valid? Because people would move from one area to another and want to join a church. But the church they was coming from, where they had been baptized, was it a scriptural church? Was it a church that had its candlestick? If it doesn't have its candlestick, all of its actions are without authority. And so here was the other issue that agitated during this time. Is the baptism of heretics valid? Of course, the strict churches said no. And when someone would come to them from one of these churches that they didn't deem as uh, authoritative, they would baptize them. In their mind, we're not rebaptizing you. You never had a true first baptism. And we're simply baptizing you. And this goes back over in the book of Acts. Paul run across 12 disciples. 
And he began to talk to them. Paul was an apostle. One of the attributes of the office of apostle was that the gifts of the Holy Spirit were passed on through the laying on of the hands of the apostles. Now this whole thing, this modern thing of speaking in tongues and all this other garbage, well, it's not garbage. They did speak in tongues. They did heal people. They did, uh, were given inspiration and different things to speak the Word of God. But after the day of Pentecost, when that, those gifts was bestowed upon the church in Jerusalem, it was not passed on to other believers, new believers, new churches, except through the laying on of the hands of the apostles. That was noted in, in Acts when Philip was preaching there, and uh, the sorcerer, Simon. And he said, I want to be able to do that. That's neat. How much money will you take to give me that ability? You know, and of course, Peter soundly rebuked him for that. Several times in Paul's writings, he indicated, I want to come to you that I might bestow these gifts to you so that you're not behind any of the other churches. That's what he said to Rome. Obviously, Peter hadn't been there yet. There was a church in Rome. Peter hadn't been there, any of the other apostles, because they didn't have the gifts. That's what Paul was talking about. So he comes across these 12 disciples. He said, have you received the Holy Spirit yet? They said, well, he hadn't even heard of any Holy Spirit. You know, we hadn't heard about these things. We said, well, what were you baptized into? Who baptized you? Well, they was baptized by Apollos, who at that time, all he knew was the baptism of John. John never authorized his disciples to baptize in his name. His was an introductory ministry that was to cease with him. He was to prepare the way and point people to Christ. Then Christ, uh, John chapter 4, I believe it is, it begins that the people thought that Christ made and baptized more disciples than John. But Christ didn't baptize anybody but his disciples. He oversaw, he authorized his disciples to baptize in his name. We, he institutes his church in the commission. He's authorizing his churches to baptize in his name by his authority. Now we're acting under his authority, under his name. And so he asked, and they said, we don't know, you know, John's baptism. So Paul preaches the gospel to them, explains, and then when he baptizes them, and then he lays hands on them and they receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But he baptized them first. Why? Because they didn't, that first baptism wasn't a valid baptism. And that's the pattern. Why do we do this? Again, we want to use Scripture. Here's the controversy we can talk about, but why do we do what we do? Because of the pattern that is established for us in the Scripture. Be sure that you make all things according to the pattern that was shown to thee in the mount. This is part of the pattern, what Paul did here. He came across some disciples, but they did not have scriptural baptism. He could not bestow the gifts of the Spirit, which was part of the work of the church, on them until they had received scriptural baptism. And so he baptized them. And that was the position of the the strict churches when one came to them from a church that was deemed heretical without a candlestick. There was some question about the authority and the authority behind their actions. They would baptize that person before receiving them into the membership of that church, just like we do today, or ought to be doing today. But that became a controversy with those, just like today, they want to receive these other baptisms, and they want everybody to accept them and accept their actions. In this period of time, they rejected that. And about 250 A.D., this is an important date here, about 250, right, right up about here, right in the, 
middle of that third century. There was a schism. That's the reason I refer to this period as the time of apostasy and schism. That's when the, the apostasy had grown to such an extent. You know, there's a lot of churches today. I've grown up in, in churches. And we'd have conferences. We'd have fellowships. We'd have different things. And there was a lot of churches that would come or churches that we would affiliate with in some way or another. But they had some practices that were hmm, kind of questionable. We, we still tolerate them. But they, there's some issues there that really kind of send up some red flags and, and makes you back off a little bit. But we still count them as Baptist churches. Until the, uh, uh, a breaking point comes. And that's what happened in 250 A.D. A breaking point came. There was actually two steps to this. One was in 250 over the election of who was going to be the next pastor of the church at Rome. There was two men that was considered, Cornelius and Novatius, or Novation. I forget which one was which. One was in Rome, one was in Carthage, about the same time. And Cornelius favored the receiving of the lapsi. This, this, the issue here was over the lapsi. And Novatus opposed it. So, and, and so here you have a church. I don't know how large it was at the time. It was in Rome, so I'm assuming it was a rather large congregation. But you have these two sides within this church. Two opinions. There's, you know, that's what Paul referred to. There be no schism. There be no division. You're supposed to say, think the same way. Have the same judgment. But this church was of two opinions. It was of two judgments. And the majority went with Cornelius. The minority separated. And became a separate congregation in Rome. And elected Novation as their pastor. Now, Rome was not unique in this situation. And so suddenly, all over the Roman Empire, these churches are splitting. To where each town, where there had been one church, now there's two. One strict, one unorthodox. Cornelius evidently didn't last too long as pastor. Because in the next year, 251 A.D., uh, uh, man by the name of Stephanus was the pastor of the church at Rome. And he got upset with the other churches that would not receive what we would today call alien baptism. He got upset with them and, and wanted to exclude all of them. And, and some of his friends and all kinds said, you can't do that. You know, you don't, you're just the pastor of this church. You have no authority to exclude all these other pastors and churches. But what he said when he wanted to exclude them, he coined the phrase and called them Anabaptists or rebaptizers. It was kind of it was a slang term, a derisive, derisive term. It became a term of a heresy to be an Anabaptist. Now remember, at this time, both sides are being persecuted by the Roman authorities. Now we come to the church at Pergamos. Um, and the church at Pergamos... Get back over here. Write these things, saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. That's kind of interesting. How he represents himself of all the images that is associated with him in the beginning. And which ones he chooses to represent himself to each particular church is fitting to the, the nature of the, the problems and what have you. He said, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Now here we see the next step in the mystery of iniquity. 
The Roman Empire was not without its own controversies. And there was a struggle within the Roman Empire over who would become the emperor. And a man by the name of Constantine won that struggle. And he, we, we, the history that we received was that God showed him a sign in heaven, and this sign conquered, and it was the cross. And he won the battle, and he became the emperor. And so he wanted to adopt Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now history will tell you, well, that was a great victory for the Lord's churches. No, it wasn't. It was just the opposite. And here's what, for a couple of reasons. But he's, he sent out a call for the, the churches to come and to unite. And the, after the split that had occurred back in 250-251 A.D., the one church, because they had developed the, the hierarchy, they was kind of ruled by a, a group of pastors getting together. And, and all. a matter of fact, uh, in the ancient world, the, the, they called themselves Catholic. Now, originally the term Catholic meant the original. That's why in some... And it really throws some people off. You read in history where some that we think of as our forefathers in the faith talk about they believe in the Catholic Church. They use the term in its original sense. They're saying we believe in the original church, which is what we've been talking about here, the church that Jesus built. That's what they meant when they used the term Catholic. It wasn't until Augustine, sometime later, that he redefined Catholic to be the one church and developed the idea of the universal visible church, making it synonymous with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and the church is synonymous in, from their approach. And there's a, a couple of things that go along with that. But we see the foundations... A lot of times we think of Catholicism, that the foundation of Catholicism was universal church. No. The foundation went back to the, pastoral, the abuse of pastoral authority. Um, and the idea of the church for salvation. Matter of fact, there was a quote, and it was from a history book that I had as a textbook in Bible College, Lexington Baptist College, Sound Baptist College. But how many really sound Baptist history books do we have that they could use? So we used it, but with applying a, a, a certain amount of salt to it as we read it. But there was a, a statement in there. And basically, they, the part of the deviation, they had developed... Uh, Baptismal regeneration, the idea that baptism was necessary to save. They were developing the concept of infant baptism because if baptism washed away your sins, the sooner you applied it, the sooner you made a Christian out of somebody. And this became instrumental. Satan was lining the ducks up so that when you have a church that is the official religion of the empire, and so every citizen of that empire is automatically a Christian by definition. Infant baptism supports that. As soon as they're born, they're baptized and thus become a member of that church. So this, this con these concepts were kind of laid prior to Constantine and incorporated when he came into power. And, uh, and the, this one preacher... Cyprian? But he's quoted in this book that by the year 200, it's actually a little bit later than that, but again, this is the Catholic view of history. He said all the churches that come together, there is one big church, and they held in common the, the canon of the, the, the Scripture, 
And, and he talked about the Apostles' Creed, which hadn't even been written at that time, I don't think. But this is a historian later looking back and talking about these things. And he was quoting Cyprian. And basically, there was no salvation outside the church. You had to be a member of the church to be saved. But you had baptismal regeneration, you know, church membership. These building blocks were already laid in place. So the foundation of Catholicism is pastoral authority and church salvation. That's exactly what the priesthood of the church, Baptists, are teaching today. Nothing new, because that's what they were doing back then. And that's what led to the Catholic Church. How important is it to understand your history? Now, these priesthood of the church are landmark Baptists. And many times they'll come into our conferences, our fellowships and things. But that's the seeds of Catholicism right there. And from that came the idea, well, the church and the kingdom as being synonymous. Anyway, so Pergamus they call for these pastors to come together. And it was the Catholic churches that united under Constantine. Not the Baptists. Baptists said, we don't have anything to do with that. And you don't have anything to do with us. They didn't even bother to go. They just went on doing what they had been doing. Now at this time, see, as we go through the, uh, the earlier stages, this... Strict Baptist churches were called Montanist because they believed in the depending upon the leadership of the Holy Spirit. It was kind of a revival of getting back to the being led of the Holy Spirit and things like that, and a, a, a godly life. The brother was preaching this morning: "Be holy, for I am holy." That's what the Montanists were preaching, but they're considered schismatics. Because a lot of the churches didn't believe that, didn't want to have to do that. Uh, then you had the Novationists, the split that came up later. And many of the Montanist churches became Novation churches. They, they didn't change, but the name that was applied to them changed. And now you have another group that rose up. They were predominantly in North Africa. They was called the Donatists. And they opposed the Catholic Church. They were deemed Anabaptists. Now, doctrinally, and, and at this point, understand that doctrinally, these churches were all very similar. And what was considered orthodox, these Donatists and Novations were considered orthodox by the Catholic Church. Their heresy was they were schismatics. They wouldn't join with the Catholic Church in what they were doing. They wouldn't agree with them. They wouldn't go along with them. Now, under Constantine, and here is the other thing. said, so this is the religion of my empire. I'm the emperor of the empire. I'm the head of the church. And they accepted that. What did we say about Jesus being the head of this church? The foundation, the seeds of that had already been sown generations prior. They had no trouble accepting the emperor. And here's why. Because they wouldn't be persecuted anymore. You know what else the emperor did? He confiscated all the pagan temples and turned them over to the Catholic churches as places of worship. You know what else? Every citizen of the empire was de facto a Christian. So you have unconverted pagans, now members of the Catholic Church, going to worship in their old pagan temples with all their pagan symbolism and everything. Is it any wonder the Catholic Church, even to this day, is so pagan? That's where it started. Unconverted pagans being 
called Christian, they, they ran them through, they baptized them, yeah, you're now Christian. Their children are baptized, you're now part of the Catholic Church, the, the official religion of the Roman Empire. And you go to worship. They still held to their old beliefs and practices. They're worshiping in their old pagan temples. They had their customs and holidays and things. Catholicism said, no problem. We'll just give it a Christian title and it's all good. That's where this started. Constantine did something else. He created a second capital because the Roman Empire was so large. We think about it mostly in terms of the western half of the empire because that's where a lot of our history comes from. But he embraced a part of Asia too. And so he built a second capital. Actually, he rebuilt an old city that had run down at Byzantium. And he renamed it Constantinople after himself. And so you had two capitals of the Roman Empire. One in the west in Rome, one in the east in Constantinople. One empire, but the administration of this empire was divided up between these two capitals. And at that time, it had two emperors. One that ruled in Rome, one that ruled in Constantinople. Now today, Constantinople is known as Istanbul. That's in Turkey. But back then, this was uh, the second capital of the Roman Empire. Um, and so, as we think about this from the Pergamus, the church and state being united, Oh, me. Let me try to sum this up real quick. It's hard to cram all this in. But there's several important things that lay the foundations for what's to come. And it's important for us to understand what's happening because the same thing's happening to America today. The Huns began to... to uh, see, I'm always in my mind, I'm seeing the map looking this way. I have to remember your mirror reverse. Uh, the Huns are pushing down out of Asia. And the Germanic tribes are being driven down toward the Roman Empire. Now, Germans had been a part of the Roman Empire for some time. A lot of Germans had assimilated into the Roman Empire, and they had become Roman. They were Romanized. They had the Roman language. They had the Roman currency. They had the Roman trade and, and commerce. They, they, they were assimilated. That's how America used to welcome immigrants in and they assimilated. They became American citizens. They came under American law. They adopted American customs and culture because evidently they thought it was better than where they were. That's why they came here. But now all of a sudden, massive. there was one group that came to the emperor in Constantinople and asked permission to settle in part of the Roman Empire. And the way the sea comes up there, I'm not sure, the Black Sea or the Caspian Sea, that kind of came up there. So there was this stretch of land, this land bridge, that was part of the Roman Empire. And he allowed these Germans to settle there, which basically separated the east, eastern part of the empire from the west. Then when the, this mass migration, invasion of Germans into the Roman Empire in the west occurred, they did not assimilate. They came in in such numbers, and they began to settle. And they were not Roman. They did not want to become Romans. And so this created tensions, and there was fighting and warfare, and eventually the Roman Empire in the West collapsed. We have an invasion from the South. People are coming into this country in droves, and they're not assimilating. What do you think is going to happen? Our current culture, society, constitutional rule is eventually going to collapse. Learn from history. There's nothing new under the sun. Solomon said that. And boy, isn't that the truth.
And so you have the collapse of the Roman Empire. And with that, the Catholic Church is deprived of its security. But little by little, they began... But see, before they had been under the authority of the emperor. Here was an opportunity, and they began to turn the tables. Beginning with Pepin, the king of the Franks, who they converted to Catholicism. And I always say they were converted to Catholicism. They weren't converted to Christianity. They were converted to Catholicism. So all his, his kingdom became Catholic. And so this began to progress to eventually the Roman church ruled the kingdoms rather than the other way around. So we will leave you with that thought and try to pick up then this evening uh, with the beginning of the Dark Ages, the medieval period. Thank you.